Open our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke once again as we continue to work through this account of our Lord and Savior's life. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 22, verses 21 through 30. Verses 21 through 30. I'm going to back up a little bit just for context and start reading. In verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is all fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after, they said, they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, this is your holy word given and preserved. Lord, what privilege, what a privilege we have to hold it in our hands, to sit it in our laps, to read it, Lord, whenever we so desire, to study its truth. Our prayer now is that your spirit would lead us in righteousness, lead us to Christ, to behold him, to believe him, to find our greatest peace and comfort in him, to know him, to become like him in preparation for being in your presence forevermore. Lead us now in your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, if there's one thing that we as Christians, we as good church people enjoy doing, it's breaking bread together, right? We love to eat with one another. It is one of the most basic and most practiced demonstrations of our fellowship. It is characteristic of healthy families. It is characteristic of healthy churches. And it is demonstrated throughout Scripture in both Testaments. That idea of fellowship linked with spiritual intimacy. 
You know, God himself even shows us the beauty of fellowship with him through these means. After he had delivered the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai and he gave them his law, establishing them as his people. In Exodus 24, God then invited Moses and the leaders up into his presence on the mountain where they were able to behold him and eat and drink before him as those chosen and reconciled to him according to his covenant. And now, as those redeemed by Christ, we have the ultimate privilege of also enjoying God's presence in this way. Our sermon this morning is going to build to us coming to the table of our Lord. And we had the privilege last week of, of looking at how our Lord Christ took the Jewish Passover and presented himself as the fulfillment of everything that it represented. He would be the ultimate Lamb of God who would die so that his people could be passed over by eternal death. His body represented by the bread, would be broken on the cross in the sinner's place. His blood, represented by the wine, would be poured out as the price of our redemption. And so as a church, we have this enduring ordinance as a means of grace given to us to practice regularly. It's a tangible exercise attended by the very Spirit of Christ that demonstrates how we are reconciled to the holy God of the universe through the substitutionary atonement of his son. This morning, as we continue our way through this text, however, the text takes a decidedly different tone. Jesus moves from the awe and the wonder of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper into the revelation of his betrayal. And through his words, we are led to consider some of the facets of Christ-like leadership. Because that's really the heart of what he's encouraging his, his disciples to understand. What is the heart of Christ-like leadership? Well, in answer to that question, the first thing we'll see this morning is that a Christ-like servant leader seeks to be carefully aware of his own heart. A Christ-like servant leader seeks to be carefully aware of his own heart. Again, up to this point in time, Jesus had told his disciples on several occasions that he was going to go up to Jerusalem, he was going to be arrested and killed by the religious leaders, yet he would rise again on the third day to conquer death. What he had not told them up to this point was that now one of his own disciples was going to be the one who betrayed him to this death. If we look earlier in the Gospels, there are narrator remarks in the Gospels that tell us that Jesus knew that Judas was going to be the one to betray him. But this was information that the disciples didn't know at the time it was happening. So Jesus decided to break this news to his disciples at the supper in verse 21. And this information would hit them like a brick to the side of the head. The idea that one of the men reclining at the table with Jesus would be his betrayer was horrific. Well, after Jesus revealed that his betrayer was at the table, among them, he followed that by saying, look at verse 22, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now, the first part of this verse is an affirmation of God's sovereignty even in the death of Christ. The Son of Man was meant to be the suffering servant. According to Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. 
We see Peter reiterate the same idea when he's preaching the first sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.23 when he says, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of godless men. So the death of Jesus Christ was planned from the foundation of the world. However, Judas, the, the one by whom he would be betrayed, he would still be held absolutely responsible for his part. So Jesus says, woe to that man. And that is a very strong word of judgment. What it means is that it would have been infinitely better for Judas never to have existed than for him to face an eternity in the torment of hell for his treachery and unbelief. What is interesting, though, is just as Jesus reveals this to them, just as he pronounces this woe upon the one who would be a betrayer, what is interesting is the disciples' response. Look at verse 23. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who who was going to do this. Notice that not one of them suspected Judas at this point. None of them went, yeah, I bet it's Judas. None of them. Despite what the gospel writers later knew of Judas and recorded in their accounts, at this time, after three years with Jesus, Judas had appeared to be as faithful to disciple as all the rest of them. In fact, since Jesus allowed Judas to be entrusted with the group's money bag, the rest of the disciples might have even thought that Judas was especially above reproach. If we go to the parallel account in Mark chapter 14, it says that after this revelation, the disciples were even looking at one another and saying to one another, is it, is it me? The idea that one of them who had firsthand contact with Jesus and firsthand experience of his power and authority over a three-year, three-year-plus period, that one of them would betray their Lord was unthinkable. And that brings us, brothers and sisters, to our first point. Judas is a reminder to us that we have to be careful to know our own hearts. We have to be careful to remember Jeremiah 17, 9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We pair that also with what Solomon said in Proverbs 4, 23, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Jesus also said in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And so I ask us these questions this morning, Christian. Do you know your own heart? Do you know what your weaknesses are? Do you know what your blind spots are? What are your besetting sins? What are your doubts? What are your personal struggles? How do you do spiritually when you're stressed or when you're tired or when you're suffering? When things are going well, are you still humble and faithful in seeking Christ? Or are you prideful and self-dependent? When someone sins against you, do you return evil for evil? Or do you respond with compassion and grace? Are there long-term patterns of sin in your life that you continue to hide? Patterns of behavior that you just accept that your conscience is no longer sensitive to? Do you focus on outward appearances in order to hide and to cover up your inward darkness? 
Are you inwardly calloused and apathetic to the things of God? Do you ever find yourself looking for ways to excuse or minimize or justify your sin? Your answers to those questions may reveal dangerous things lurking in our hearts. This is why Paul warned the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. That's 2 Corinthians 13.5. Brothers and sisters, remember that the greatest heretics, the greatest false teachers of all time, the vast majority of them came from within the church, not from outside it. Some of those who have been most dangerous and brought the greatest reproach upon Christianity are not those from without the church. They are those from within the church. This is why John said in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. I say this with a heavy heart, brothers and sisters, but it's the truth we see manifested with what Jesus says here. The very last person that you ever think could turn away from Christ could be a Judas. Do you know that 95% of our church discipline cases as a church are people who just a few years earlier seem to be doing well in their walk with Christ? And so what do we learn from this? What is the warning to us through Judas? Fight your sin. Examine yourself. Get help and counsel and accountability from your spiritual family. As it says in James 4.8, draw near to Christ and he will draw near to you. And again, that's the beauty of understanding that we have a Savior that knows everything about us already. Jesus knows every inkling of your heart. He is never deceived about your heart, even though you might be. And Jesus is at work, even in this second, to form in each of his children a heart like his. Jesus forgives. Jesus brings light to darkness. Jesus is the one who justifies. You don't have to self-justify and self-protect because Jesus Christ is the one who justifies. Jesus Christ is the one who protects. And so don't believe the lies of your flesh. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Draw near to him. And when you see those things that are lurking in your heart, endeavor by his grace and his strength to yank those things out by the root. A Christ-like servant leader seeks to be carefully aware of his own heart. Because he or she is beloved by Christ, we want to honor him. We want to protect our witness, our family, and our church. So brothers and sisters, let us be warned by the example of Judas. Secondly, a Christ-like servant leader knows that greatness is displayed in humble service. A Christ-like servant leader knows that greatness is displayed in humble service. Strangely enough, 
this conversation among the disciples takes a very strange turn. Jesus has just told them that one of you at the table is going to betray me. And so a conversation ensued amongst them. Who is it? Is it me? Verse 24 says, a dispute also arose amongst them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Can you imagine this? They went from asking, is it me, to saying, well, you know, it can't really be me. I'm a great disciple. To saying, well, you know what? I'm an even greater disciple than you. If it's going to be anyone, it's going to be you, not me. A dispute arose amongst them. And they had had this argument before. We saw it back in Luke chapter 9, verse 46. We see it also in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. I tell you what, if if I were here and I were in the place of Christ, I would be saying to myself, as I listen to my disciples do this, I would be saying to myself, oh my goodness, not again. Especially after everything I've taught them and shown them, how can they be arguing again about which one of them is the greatest? The good news, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus is far more patient and understanding than I am, right? The disciples were being blatantly arrogant, which was wholly inappropriate, considering what Jesus had just taught them and shown them. But seeing his men swimming in their own pride, Jesus decided once again to turn this episode into a teachable moment, and he began his lesson by making a contrast. Look at verse 25. He says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. Now, every Jew knew what it was like to have pagan kings and authorities lording themselves over them and subjugating them harshly. The Jews had suffered greatly under the tyrannical rule of such men. You think of the Roman Caesars, the Herods, and Pontius Pilate. Even worse was that these men who were their overlords wanted to be viewed as philanthropists in this whole affair. They wanted to be called benefactors. You can almost imagine imagine the the superior attitude of Pontius Pilate and the, the Roman governors. Oh, see, here we are. We're just here as Romans to help these backwater Jews. These Israelites are stubborn. They only have one God. Who ever heard of that? Their religion is awkward and abasing. We're just here to help them, to enlighten them, to bring them into the greatest empire on earth. We are nothing but benevolent leaders. That's how the Gentiles acted. Jesus says that this kind of thinking has no place among his disciples. Because true greatness isn't manifested in lording yourself over others. It is manifested in serving others. You know, the youngest people in that society, the youngest people were the ones with no status. The younger you were, the more you were expected to do the most menial chores and to serve the needs of those older and more distinguished than you. So Jesus says the greatest Christian leaders are the ones who serve like the youngest. Pick up with verse 27. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. With this statement, Jesus points them to his own example before them. Remember what the gospel of John gives us. John in his gospel tells us of how Jesus served his men that very evening. You see, when the whole group arrived to the upper room to observe the Passover, the disciples just immediately went in and reclined at the table. 
They waited to be served, to see which house servant was going to come and wash their feet. Washing other people's feet was the most menial job assigned to the lowest person in the house. And none of them was going to do it. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus girded himself up and he went around the table washing each of his disciples' feet. They reclined at the table like the great men of the world. Jesus, on the other hand, served like a great man of God. Brothers and sisters, isn't it humbling and amazing how we see Jesus serving at every turn? Philippians 2 tells us of how Jesus served his Father's purpose of redemption by leaving the glories of heaven to take on flesh and be born into the sinful world. Over and over again, he served the outcasts of the world by releasing the demon-possessed, by healing the lepers, by touching the blind and the lame, by eating with tax gatherers and prostitutes, by raising the dead. Jesus even served the hard-hearted people of Israel by having compassion on them, by teaching them God's truth, and by warning them of the coming judgment. And you know, the ultimate way that Jesus served us all is by suffering in our place. Jesus fulfilled God's righteous requirements by being tempted, but by never sinning. He bore the full brunt of God's divine wrath as our substitute on the cross. He became our life by defeating death and rising from the grave. And do you know that right now, right this very second, Jesus is serving us faithfully from heaven by being our intercessor, our strength, our peace, our source of forgiveness and grace, our present help and guide. And when you and I blow it, and let's just be honest with one another, we blow it often. When we fall short, Christ does not pull back. He serves us even more faithfully. We have so great a salvation, a salvation that cannot be lost even. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is that if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, you name the name of Christ, you have believed on him, that means that you have been redeemed from self-centeredness. You have been redeemed from being self-serving by the greatest servant in the universe. And as those redeemed by Christ, we love Christ, and those who love Christ walk in those same footsteps of service. True Christ-like servant leaders know that true greatness is displayed in humble service. And so let's talk about this for just a minute. Can you imagine, can you imagine how your marriage would take an incredible step forward of how your marriage could even be transformed if you served your spouse like Christ? What if you put their needs before your needs as a pattern of daily love? What if you served them without any strings attached, right? Without any expectation that they have to do the same for you. Because in all honesty, this is what stops most of us in our married life, right? Well, Pastor Sean, I hear you. I hear that I'm supposed to serve my spouse's needs before my own, but, but what about my needs? What if I do that and they don't serve me back? And we use that as justification to not serve. 
What would it look like, brothers and sisters, if our hearts were so settled in Christ that you would never fear your spouse taking advantage of your service, but rather you would serve them joyfully knowing that Christ can work and love and reveal and change through you. Think of how serving like Christ would just transform our marriages. Uh, Let me just talk to those who, who may be single. As a single adult, can you imagine how Christ would use that same self-sacrificing heart of service to touch others? I mean, you talk about being in this world. We, we know difficult people. We have difficult people in our families. We have difficult people that we go to school with. We have difficult people that we work with. We have that, that one other fellow employee who, who never does anything or who does everything wrong or who just is hard to interact with. We have that boss that is overbearing. How might Christ use a heart of Christ-like service to show them the truth of the gospel? How might Christ use that heart of Christ-like service to open up doors for the gospel with that family member who only knows how to take and take and take? Or or youth. Let Let me speak to our youth. Young people in the youth group of Morning View Baptist Church. Let's just be honest. You are at an age where self tends to be your main preoccupation, right? Your thinking is is dominated by concerns of what helps you feel secure, what makes you fit in and be accepted, what makes you comfortable, what makes you happy. And all that you focus, all that self-centeredness causes you to press against your parents' decisions because you want more things and more freedoms that you feel they are denying you, right? You're so so focused on your friend group and your clique so that your desires are met that you don't see much outside of that. For our young people, for our youth, for you that have professed Christ, do you understand that your life is so much bigger than you? That it's about more than you? Christ is your security. Christ is your acceptance. Christ is your comfort and your happiness. And so even now, you are set free from thinking like the youth of this world. You are set free to give rather than just get. Rather than being focused on what you can get from your parents and what you can conjole them into making happen for you, you can instead respectively serve them and help in your home and show your siblings a picture of Christ. Rather than coming to church and just focusing on your clique and having your relational needs met, you can go to that quiet kid over in the corner who has no friends and be a friend. Or you can go to that visitor who just wants to be accepted, who wants to know what Christian community is, and you can put their needs before your own. This comes back to all of us, brothers and sisters. For the true, for the true Christian... This is the equation for joy. You want to hear it? For the true Christian, this is the equation for joy. Others first. Others first. As a commentator named R.C.H. Linsky said, God's great men are not sitting on top of lesser men. They are bearing lesser men on their backs. 
How do you know you have a servant's heart? Because that's what we want, right? How do you know you have a servant's heart? So often we think to ourselves, well, I know I have a servant's heart because I do this for my family and I do this for my church and I do this for the PTA and I do that. And we count up all the different ways we serve. You know what? If you're serving in a lot of different ways, praise God, do it for the glory of Christ. But I want you to understand, that's not how you know you have a servant's heart. You know, you, have, you know whether or not you have a servant's heart by how you respond when people treat you like a servant. You know whether or not you have a servant's heart by how you respond when people treat you like a servant. Does that make you angry when someone treats you like a servant? Then you don't have a servant's heart. Does it make you feel unappreciated when someone treats you like a servant? Then you don't have a servant's heart. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.1, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Brothers and sisters, may we be like Christ, loving Christ, and bearing out his same ethic of service in our lives. That takes me to my third and final point. A Christ-like servant leader looks forward to being at Christ's side in his kingdom. A Christ-like servant leader looks forward to being at Christ's side in his kingdom. You know, even as Jesus is correcting his men for their pride and presumption about their place of greatness, he still wants them to know that they have a future with him. He acknowledges with verse 28 that they had stayed with him through all his trials and ministry. They had walked the road of discipleship with him and they hadn't done it perfectly and they messed up a lot and they misunderstood a lot and their mistakes weren't over yet, but they had stayed with him. He acknowledges that. Probably if I think of one of the places where we see this manifest, I think of John chapter 6. Remember in John chapter 6, Jesus had been teaching very definitively that he was the bread of heaven, that no one could come to him unless the Father who sent him drew them. And in John 6, verse 66, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples had stuck with him. Thus, verse 29, Jesus says that the kingdom assigned to him or appointed to him by his Father would be their kingdom too. They are citizens of his kingdom by grace and are therefore co-heirs of Christ. And in this kingdom, first part of verse 30, they would eat and drink at his table. Again, remember in historical context, to be seated at the table of the king was the highest honor that could be afforded at a feast. And so what Jesus is effectively saying to them is you guys don't need to worry about elevating yourself to that place of greatness. I'm going to do that. I am the one who will bring you to my table. And finally, look at the first, look at the second half of verse 30. He says, they would sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, scholars have spilt a lot of ink discussing how we interpret this. I'm not going to do what I did last week. I'm just going to give you what I think is the right answer. All right? I think D.A. Carson is the one who, who nailed it on the head when he said, he means that at the time of, of the kingdom's consummation, the 12 tri the, excuse me the 12 disciples are going to be the ones judging the 12 tribes of ethnic Israel 
There's all kinds of argument about what all different things that could mean. But this is what it comes down to. The, the disciples had committed themselves to following Christ. He was going to be betrayed and murdered by his own people and the religious authorities that led them. Many of these men were also going to be persecuted and killed by these same authorities. But in the end times, when Christ assumes the throne of judgment, the roles will be reversed. That is the reward of these men. Right now, they stand judged by ethnic Israel, by those who are sinfully self-righteous. But in the day of Christ's return, they will rule as judges over those who rejected the Messiah and the disciples. We want to understand that the promise here is just intended for these 12 disciples. That's where the context sets us. But what Jesus says here to them also points us to a wider truth that is a reality for all of Jesus' disciples. We shall all reign with him. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall reign with him. Daniel 7, verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says in verse 2, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we shall, ju shall judge the angels? How much more than these matters pertaining to this life? And in Revelation 2, 26, it says, The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Revelation 3.21, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Brothers and sisters, we shall reign with him. Now, as we hear these words of Scripture, I hope that our hearts are not enamored or drawn to the idea of being powerful judges. Oh, yeah, did you hear what Jesus says? We're going to share his throne and we're going to be able to lord ourselves over the nations. That's not the heart we're to have. That's not why Jesus reveals this even to his disciples. What should draw our gaze, what should awaken our joy as humble servants of Christ is the thought of being at our Savior's side in the kingdom that is coming. It's the thought of, of knowing the ultimate reward for a, for a Christ-like servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know what that reward is? To be with Him. To be with Him. If we're truly in Christ, then that is the greatest desire of our hearts, is it not? To be with Him, to be with the Lord is the fulfillment of everything we could desire. To know Him, to be with Him, to be unhindered by our sin in relationship with Him. To be taken from this world where there is death and there is cancer and there is, there is war and there is horrific things that we do to one another. To be taken from this world into a place where there is only beauty where there is only peace, where there is only love, where there is only righteousness and its full brightness and brilliance and splendor and all of that to us in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is our joy, brothers and sisters. 
That is what we look forward to. That is what we in sanctification are being prepared for. To be in the presence of Christ our Lord forevermore at his side. Reigning forever and ever and ever. This takes me to the words of Psalm 118. As we hear the the psalmist exult, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine on us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords upon the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Brothers and sisters, it is that law, that that, that blessing, that steadfast love of the Lord that draws us in, that keeps us. That love of the Lord Jesus Christ that that inspires us, that drives us by love into that path of holiness and service and self-sacrifice. Christ has led the way. May we be Christ-like servant leaders who follow. Amen.